So Isaiah 43 is where we are. Isaiah 43. This is a long chapter. And boy, is it a good one. So we'll see if we can, if we can look at this chapter together and study about our great and awesome God. One more time, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we study it together. Father, now as we come to the reading of the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God, oh Father, I am weak. We are weak. But you, Holy Spirit, are strong. And so we pray that the Word would go forth and that we would receive it not just as a word of man, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which performs its divine, supernatural work in those who believe. So take every word, every verse, every statement this afternoon, and Holy Spirit, take them and use them as your divine arrows to go deep into our hearts. God, if there are any who are lost in this room, save them today. For those who are beloved children of God, would you grow and strengthen and edify us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. When people today open their Bibles to study God's word, one of the first questions that people often ask is the question, what does this text mean to me? Uh, They read the Bible and they open the Bible from the Old Testament or the New. And the question often is, what does the text mean to me? But I would propose to you this afternoon, that's the wrong question to ask initially. I think there is a better question to ask. And the better question that we ought to ask when we open our Bible for Bible reading and Bible study, that better question is, what does the text mean, period? Uh, What did the author mean by what he wrote in the text of Scripture? And how did the original audience understand that text as it was written? And then, and then, once you have the meaning of the text, once you have what God intended to convey, well then, from that single meaning, there are many applications to life. Many, many applications to All of us in life. There are many today and many teachers and many authors and many who are online who sort of skip over the interpretation and just kind of go to the application. So what does this mean for me and what what do I think about this and how do I apply it to my life? Which is important, but what we must do before that is make sure that we study to show ourselves approved a workman who rightly handles the word of God. And we see this all around us. There are teachers and preachers who give tidbits from the Bible on how to improve your life and how to be a better you and how to be a happier you. And and they might take verses out of context and sort of leap and jump and, and make a text or a verse from whatever portion of the Bible speak to them and apply it to their life without getting at the real meaning of that particular text. You're here because you love the truth. You're here because you love the word. You're here because you want to know what does the Bible mean? And then in light of what it means, how can I apply this meaning to my life? Well, what we need is we need to hear God's message. We need to hear God's message from the word, which is all about his glory. Every word, every phrase, every verse, every chapter is all serving to underscore this great triumphant theme that God is the king and he does everything for his own glory and he's radiating his character and he wants to showcase his plan and he wants to do a great work through his people. What I want to show you this afternoon is that God does have a great plan. And what I want to show you this afternoon is we come to the meaning of the text. I will apply it, but before I get to the application, we have to get to the meaning of the text. What did Isaiah mean by what he wrote? And then once we get that meaning, then we can apply it to our lives. With all of that as introduction, let's read the chapter. 
And then I want to give you a couple of paragraphs kind of summarizing because there's a lot here. There's a lot of detail here. So let's read it and then I'll give you a little summary and then we'll walk through it together. Isaiah chapter 43. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, even though they have ears. All the nations have gathered together so that the peoples may be assembled. Who among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things? Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified, or let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I have sent to Babylon, and I will bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, into the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty man. They will lie down together and not rise. They have been quenched and extinguished like a wick. But do not call to mind the former things or ponder the things of the past. Behold, I will do something new and now I will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will make, I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. Yet you have not called on me, O Jacob, but you have become weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have bought me not sweet cane with money, nor have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. Rather, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. But I, even I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue our case together. State your cause that you may be proved right. Your first forefather sinned and your spokesmen have transgressed against me. So I will pollute the princes of the sanctuary and I will consign Jacob to the ban and Israel to revilement. That is the word of the Lord. That's a full and a long word of the Lord. You think, Jeff, I get a few of the verses here, there, but I don't know if I understand much of what that's saying. 
Let me give you a little big picture summary. Let me give you kind of flyover, and then we're going to sort of land and look at some of the details together. The chapter is about the God who created Israel, that he would be with her through Israel's deep waters, as well as through the fires of her afflictions. God is going to magnify his own glory with his own plan to bring the people of Israel back to their holy land from being scattered from all around the world. And that has only been partially fulfilled in return from the captivities, but it awaits a full fulfillment in the second coming of the Messiah. In supernaturally restoring the Jewish people, God will make Israel, that is the ethnic people, a testimony to his own deity and power. But, but in Isaiah's day, in the immediate future, God would deliver the Jewish people Israel out of Babylon. And in spite of all of, of God's goodness, and in spite of all of God's grace, Israel would still respond in her blindness. So God, through Isaiah, is going to remind her that only God, and none, nobody else, but only God, can blot out all of her transgressions and punish her for her sins. And all of that will be fulfilled when the Messiah returns at the second advent to establish his thousand-year earthly kingdom. That's a lot of detail but a simple summary of what the chapter is saying. Now, back to Isaiah 43. Look at verse 1. Now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. We must pause right here and say, who is speaking and who is the audience? Let's just begin and make sure that we understand the meaning of the text, that God is talking through the prophet Isaiah, and he's talking to Israel. He's talking to the Jews. He's talking to Jacob. He's talking to those who were in exile in Babylon and the servant who is blind, as the chapter will tell us. Uh, first of all, Isaiah is not talking to us, the church. That's, we are not the primary audience here. The church wasn't even around at the time when Isaiah was writing. The church, according to Paul, was a mystery. It was not known in the Old Testament times until it began on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God descended and began to indwell His people in this body of Christ that began in the book of Acts. And though you and I, as the New Testament church, we enjoy a whole lot of new covenant blessings that we read about in the Old Testament, we must remember that the Bible never teaches that we as the church have replaced Israel. We are not Israel. We have not replaced Israel. God still has a great plan for Israel, and the promises that he made to Israel must be fulfilled to Israel. I like to think of it like this. If a father said to his child, let's say the oldest child, I'm going to buy you a new car when you turn 16 years old. And the child says, all right, I'm going to hold you to your word. You're going to buy me a new car when I'm 16. Well, then the next child in line says, well, wait, he made the promise. I can claim that for my own as well. Well, that would be inaccurate because the intended recipient of that promise was the older Child, we must make sure that we understand the promises that God makes to Israel that we have not taken all those promises for us as the church and say that God has no future kingdom plans for Israel because he certainly does. And we're going to see that in our chapter today. In Isaiah 40 to 48, God shows his glory. He shows his greatness. He shows that he is the saving, the faithful, the protecting God. And we are going to see that this great God is the redeemer for the people of Israel. I want to show you the glory of God in our chapter, and I want to show you this in three movements. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down. They're very simple. We want to look at the chapter in three movements. Number one, God says, fear not, for I am with you. The second movement that I want to show you, you can jot this down, is fear not, for I will restore you. Not only fear not, for I am with you, fear not, for I will restore you. But then the third promise that I want to give you from this chapter this afternoon is fear not, third for I will forgive you. 
I am with you, I will restore you, and I will forgive you. Let's make sure that we understand what God is saying to his people Israel, which he clarifies for us in verse 1. And then as we go through the chapter, I will give appropriate application to us as well. But let's begin with this first movement in verses 1 through 13. Number 1, fear not, for I am with you. Look at what God says in verse 1. Thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, the one who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Verse 5 says a similar command. Do not fear. Why? For I am with you. A church family, as you and I think about having a biblical worldview, what we need, and boys and girls, what you need in your life is a biblical worldview. You need to think and view everything through a God-centered lens. And a biblical worldview always begins with God. We assume God. We presuppose God. We don't need to argue for God because everybody knows that God exists. But a biblical worldview always begins with two presuppositions. Number one, God is the creator. And number two, God is the Lord. He is the one who made all things and he is the one who rules over all things. And that's what we see in our chapter this afternoon. Remember how 42, chapter 42 ended last week? Israel was in exile because of their sin. The Jews were taken to Babylon. And you sort of throw up your arms and you think, is there hope for the people of God? They have sinned and they are blind and they are deaf and, and they'll be taken to exile as captives. Is there hope? Is there any hope? And verse 1 gives us this glorious work of God, this great work of God. Look at the verbs in your Bible in verse 1. God says, the creator to Jacob, he says that I have formed you. He says, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. Notice what God says to his people in exile. I've created you. I formed you. I have redeemed you. I have called you and you are mine. I possess you. The New Testament theology teaches this as well. No doubt. We can say this. That the church has such wonderful hope. Just like God gave to the people of Israel right here. And what does God say to them? In verses 1 to 4, he says, I am with you in your trials. Look at verse 2. And you and I know these verses. But before that they are written to us, we have to remember they were written to Israel back then at that time when they were in exile. Verse 2, Israel, when you pass through the waters of affliction and trial, I will be with you. And when you go through the rivers, they will not overflow you. And when you go through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. I wonder if Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego remembered these verses when they were in the fiery furnace. God said, I will be with you. What does he say to the people of Israel? Look at verse 4. You're precious in my sight. I, I, you are honored and I love you, people of Israel. And I will give other men, other nations in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. God has a great love for his covenant people, Israel. And he said, I will be with you in the toughest of trials. But look at verse 5. Notice what God says now. Not only will I be with you in your trials, verses 1 to 4. But now I will be with you in your future restoration as well. Verses 5 to 7. These verses are awesome. 
And I don't know how to explain these away or spiritualize them. They, they are so clear in the text, verse 5. Do not fear, Israel, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. And I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, don't hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. Whom I have formed, even those Whom I have made. What a great God. Israel, don't fear. Maybe you can relate. You and I aren't exiles today, taken captive into a foreign land like the Jews were taken to Babylon. But maybe you and I can relate in a similar circumstance in life where there's something way bigger than you can handle. Way bigger than you can handle. There's something going on now, something that will happen this week, something that has gone on. And you're looking around you and you think, how in the world am I going to get through this? How am I going to persevere? I can't do this. I don't have the strength to do this. And God says to his people in verse 5, don't fear. Don't fear. Remember in the book of Exodus... There was that bush that was on fire, but it was not being consumed. Remember that? And who was the man who was walking by? None other than Moses. And the Lord said, take off your sandals. And then God said he would raise up Moses to be his mouthpiece. And Moses said, you have the wrong guy, Lord, not me. And God said, I will be with you. Later on in Joshua chapter 1, when God raised up Joshua and said, Joshua, you're going to lead my people Israel across the Jordan River and you're going to lead them into the promised land. Hundreds of years of promises being fulfilled and you're going to conquer greater nations. And he thinks, how am I going to do this? Joshua 1.5, the Lord said, do not fear, I will be with you. A little bit later on in the book of Jeremiah, God said, Jeremiah, I've called you from when you were in your mother's womb and I will set you apart and you will deliver my words to the rebellious people of Judah and Judah and Jeremiah says, Lord, you've got the wrong guy. God says, don't be afraid of them. I will be with you. God is saying to the people of Israel. In verses 5 and 6 and 7, you are precious. I've elected you, the people of Israel. You are my chosen people. I have a plan for you, people of Israel. And they think, well, how's that going to happen? Lord, show yourself to be faithful. You and I could say this as well in Matthew 28. Jesus, how am I supposed to do this? And Jesus would say, do not fear. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples. At the very end of that great commission, he said, I will be with you. He's with us. And notice what God says, I will bring your offspring from the east and I will gather you from the west. And then in verse six, I will gather you from the north and from the south. These are like the four corners of the earth. That's really interesting because Babylon is not in the west and Babylon is not in the south. Which tells us this wasn't only for that time, but there's something much bigger and a much more global scale, far bigger than just the exile there, bringing them out of Babylon. But there's something far more global from the north and the south and the east and the west. And God said, I will regather you, Israel. I want to prove this to you. Take your Bible and just go to Isaiah 11. And I have a reason for going to these scriptures because I want to show you the faithfulness of our God. Isaiah 11, look at verse 11. Then it will happen on that day, the Lord says. The Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And God will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel. And he will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. 
In Isaiah chapter 27, we have another promise. In Isaiah chapter 27 and in verse 13, what a, what a glorious promise here at the end of Isaiah 27. It will come about in that day, verse 13, that a great trumpet will be blown and those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and they will worship the Lord in the holy mountain of Jerusalem. And then later on in Isaiah chapter 49, we read in verse 12, Behold, my people will come from afar, from the north and from the west, and they will shout for joy, and the Lord will comfort his people. We know that from Jesus' own words in Matthew 24, this will take place when he returns again in Matthew 24, 31. We can hope in the presence And the promises of God. He will regather his people, Israel. They were called by God's name, our chapter says in verse 7. They've been created for God's glory. But, look at verse 8. Look at our chapter in verse 8. God says, bring out the people who are blind. Well, we looked at that last week. That's the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And the people who are deaf, even though they have ears, that's the people of Israel. Back in chapter 42, verse 19, let them come and bring their idols as witnesses. Can they make a defense? Of course not. And that's the point of verses 8 and 9. So what does God want his people to do? Verse 10, God says, Israel, you're my witnesses. We, we say, oh, well, that's for me. I am his witness. Yes, you are his witness. But before you apply it to yourself, it's given to the people of Israel first. The nation of Israel, verse 10, was called to be God's witnesses. And what does God want the people of Israel to know? He wants them to know who he is. And you know what? If I can tell you something, church family and boys and girls, when you're going through times of life, Like the Jews in exile, and they thought, how am I supposed to hope in God in these difficult times? Where do I go for security? Where do I go for hope? God is going to point his people to God's own character. Meaning this, the knowledge of God from the word of God changes everything. That sometimes you and I can succumb to fear and despair and discouragement and depression. And what does God want? He wants us to look up to him and see who he is. Look at what God does to Israel in verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. Remember, I've chosen you. So that you may know and believe me. I want you to know me. I want you to believe me, Israel. And I want you to understand that I am he. Jesus took that and he applied it to himself. I am. I am he. And before me, there was no God formed and there will be none after me. I am the only true God. We call it the doctrine of aseity, that God is a self-existent being. He depends upon nothing for life, nothing for existence but himself. He alone is The God, the Lord, the King. Look at verse 11. I, even I, am the Lord. And there is no Savior besides me. I have declared and I have saved and I have proclaimed that there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Look, even from all of eternity, God says, I am he. Who can can deliver out of my hand? And who can reverse what I have decreed? What comfort to his people in Israel. Israel, do not fear, for I am with you, God says. What about you in difficult times? What about you when you are in dangerous times? You think of a simple illustration of a father who takes a young child into a deep end of a swimming pool. Into the deep end of the swimming pool and the child is just learning to swim and that child says, I don't know if I can do this. Don't let go of me. I'm scared. And all the things a young child might say when they're going into the deep end of that pool. And what does the father say? Don't be afraid. I'm right here with you. I'm right here with you. I'm carrying you along. 
I am here. I will guard you. I will help you. That's what God is saying to Israel when they are in exile. And you know what? Church family, the Lord would say the same thing to us. In your life, whatever difficulty you're going through, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The Lord is with you. He is with you. And you see it right here in verse 5. He says, don't be, don't be afraid for I am with you. You say, well, I understand that, verses 1 to 13, but he goes on. He goes on in verse 14 and following, and let me give you a second movement of the chapter. And if you're taking notes, not only number one, fear not, for I am with you, but now you could write this down. Fear not, for I will restore you. I will restore you. This is awesome. This is great. This is glorious. Again, talking to Israel, talking to his covenant people whom he chose. What is so amazing to me in reading the Old Testament and reading the scriptures about God's acts toward the people of Israel God acts in such a way toward Israel, not because of how Israel acts toward God, but because of his faithfulness to his promises to her. God is the one who delivers his people, not because of who they are, not because of what they've done, but because of whose they belong to, namely the Lord. We call this grace. We call this grace. So, what is going on here? Now, let your eye look at the section here in your Bible. In verses 14 and 15, God is going to make an announcement. Here's what I'm going to do. In verses 14 and 15, I'm going to bring you Jewish people out of exile. It's a historical promise. I'm going to bring you out of exile. Well, then, in verses 16 to 21, you think, well, how do I know that's going to happen? How do I know God is really going to do that and God is going to give assurance? So he's going to make a promise and then he's going to give them proof. Look at the promise in verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake, Israel, I have sent you to Babylon. These are the Jews. This is Israel. These are the ethnic people back then. I have sent you to Babylon because of your sin, but I will bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans into the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your king. What's God saying? I'm going to bring you out of Babylon and I'm going to judge them. That's a pretty big promise. I mean, if you're in exile, if you're enslaved to the Babylonians and you think, well, how's that going to happen? I and mean, that's a pretty radical promise, but we're in exile right now. How do I know? Lord, can you give me some proof? Look at verse 16. Thus says the Lord. Who makes a way through the sea. And a path through the mighty waters. And he brings forth the chariot and the horse. And the army and the mighty man. They will lie down together and not rise. They have been quenched and extinguished like a wick. What is that talking about? Do you remember? Think Old Testament. It's the Exodus. This is language in verses 16 and 17. Remember what I did to the horses and the chariots and that mighty man Pharaoh? Remember how they all were destroyed when they passed through the sea? Remember that? Verse 18. Well, forget all that. Verse 18. Don't call to mind the former things or ponder the things of the past because I'm going to do something new. What's God saying? Always remember the lessons of the past. But you can't always bank on the exact same method by which God is going to deliver his people. What did God say? I brought you through the sea before. We read that in verses 16 and 17. But now in verses 19 and 20, I'm going to bring you through the wilderness. You're going to, you're going to be brought through the desert. You're going to come home from Babylon through the desert, dry, barren land. You know what God is saying? I mentioned it Wednesday, but I'll say it again here. Our God 
is a consistent God. But you can't predict God's ways. God's character doesn't change. His character never ever changes. But His ways are not predictable. We don't always know and we can't, we can't try to put God in a box and say, well, well, God, you did this back then, so you must do it again right now. God is always consistent, but he's not always predictable. And yet the Lord says to his people, Israel, I'm going to bring you out of exile from Babylon. And you think, how's that going to happen? Remember how I brought you out of Egypt? Remember my power? Remember how I did an amazing miracle back then? Well, I'm going to, in a similar way, bring you out, but it's not going to be through water. It's going to be through the desert. It's going to be through a desert. And I think the language of verses 20 and 21 even leads us to hope in the future kingdom when God does bring great prosperity to the desert region when there is a great Exodus and a return back to their land. And what will happen? Verse 21, the people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. Well, God is consistent. God is powerful. God is awesome. God is a glorious delivering God. But you can't always predict his ways. Right? Who can predict when he's going to save people? Who can predict how he's going to save people? Who can predict at what time he's going to save people? Our God is consistent, but he's not always predictable. When I think of these things, my mind goes to Acts chapter 12. Just by way of illustration, remember that story in the book of Acts when when Peter was put in jail by Herod, and no doubt he was being going to be put to death the following day, but God, in his amazing plan, wanted to deliver Peter, but he was kept in prison, and in the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord came to Peter while he was sleeping. I I love this story, and the angel of the Lord came to Peter while he was sleeping, and, and the angel struck him in the side. I mean, that must have been a little painful, maybe a kick in the side. Peter, get up. Wake up, put on your shoes, put on your cloak, and follow me. You know, he's got to kind of rub his eyes a little bit. He's been sleeping. He's got to put on his cloak. He's got to put on his shoes. And, And then as he begins to walk, remember this, the gate opened automatically. Well, who could have seen that happening? Who could have foreseen that? And the Lord delivered, the Lord delivered Peter out of prison. God is consistent, but he's not always predictable. And what is God promising to his people in Isaiah 43, verses 14 to 21? People of Israel, you can always trust my character, but I'm not always predictable. Yes, I delivered my people out of Egypt through the sea, and I will bring you back through the desert. I am a faithful one, and I will restore you, and I will, verse 21, make you to be a people who will declare my praise. Oh, I wish we could go to the city of Jerusalem right now and the Jewish people would be declaring the praise of their Redeemer, their Messiah, Yeshua, but they're not doing that. They are declaring the praise of their own mitzvahot, their good deeds, And they are declaring the praise of who they are and what they have done. But according to Jeremiah chapter 33 and verse 9, there is coming a day when my people will become to me a name of joy. And they will be the praise and the glory before all the nations of the earth, which will hear of all the good that I do to Israel And they will fear and they will tremble of all of the good and of all of the peace that I make for my people Israel. One day, verse 21, will happen that the people of Israel whom God formed for himself will declare his praise. But wait a minute. You and I have been formed by God as well. 
You and I have been recreated by God, by his grace in the new birth. Real quick, keep your finger here, but go with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, because Peter is going to pick up on this theme theologically. In 1 Peter chapter 2, I want you to see this because it answers a question that many people have in this world. Why am I here? And maybe you as a Christian have wondered that. Why am I here? You know, why didn't God save you and then take you to heaven? I mean, that would have been a little bit easier, right? And not a whole lot of trials and hardships at that point. He just saved you and take you to heaven. But why did he leave you here? Whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you're a worker, out of the home, whether you're retired, whether you're a child, a teenager, whatever season of life, whatever position of life, here is what God has given to you as our ultimate mission. First Peter 2, beginning in verse 9. Speaking to the Jewish people who are exiled all throughout the Roman Empire, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why did God do this work for you? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what God wants for you. So if you're a stay-at-home mom, you can proclaim the excellencies of Christ to your children throughout the day. As a man who is working perhaps outside of the home, you can say, God, help me to be faithful and to take opportunities to proclaim the excellencies of Christ as you give me opportunity. As you are a father leading in family worship, God, help me to be faithful on a daily basis to lead my family in proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. Whatever season of life, this is your mission. To proclaim God's praise. God has the same mission for Israel. The people back in Isaiah 43 that God formed for his own glory. One day they will proclaim his praise. And by the way, Romans 11 says that church family, predominantly the Gentile church, Your worship of the Messiah should provoke the Jewish people to jealousy. Praise God. So, what are we seeing in Isaiah 43? Number one, fear not, because I'm with you. Number two, fear not, for I will restore you. Number three, Let me give you a third movement as we sort of conclude the chapter here in verses 22 to 28. Fear not, for I will forgive you. For I will forgive you. The story is told of a young teacher who was leading a Sunday school class, a young lady, and she had concluded her well-prepared lesson before these boys and these girls and at the end of the, of, the, of the Sunday school class, she wanted to make sure that she had made her point to all of these children. And so just kind of one final question in the class. She said, can anybody tell me what you must do in order to be forgiven? There's kind of a pause for a moment. And then one little boy in the back raised his hand really confidently and she called on him and the little boy said, all you have to do is sin and then God will forgive you. Well, that's part of it. That's part of it. Sin is part of it. But you know what's interesting? That's exactly what God brings out right here. Israel, you've sinned and you've sinned big time. Look at what we read in verses 22 to 24. You, verse 22, you have not called on me, O Jacob, and you have become weary of me, Israel. Isn't that interesting? They have become weary of God. Verse 23, you have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. Well, they brought all kinds of sacrifices. The point is they didn't honor God in so doing. You know that lamb? That's the best one I've got in my flock. And you know, how, you know how much that thing's probably worth? All right. All right, I'll give it to God. I'll go. I'll go to the temple. I'll give up the best that I have. It's kind of a heartless, kind of a form of worship. 
Verse 24, you have brought me not sweet cane with money, nor have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. Rather, God says, you've burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Do you hear what God is saying? You are corrupt, Israel. That's why you're in exile. That's why Nebuchadnezzar came and took you to exile because you've sinned. What does that mean? There are consequences to sin. You know, I think there's so much we can learn from these verses here. God did not just want their sacrifices. He wanted them. I think that's a good lesson for us, just by way of application. What is God saying to Israel? You were just going through the motions with your sacrifices, but you weren't honoring me. You were wearying me with your sin. And God says, I don't need your sacrifices. I want your heart. I think there's an application there for us somewhere, isn't there? God doesn't need our our money in the offering. He doesn't need our songs. He doesn't need us to just go through the motions. What does he say? I want your heart. Don't don't just go through the form and go through the ritual in a heartless kind of a way. No, no, no. I want your heart. I want you to come before me, God is saying, with a a humble heart, with a a hungry heart, with an honest heart. And then... You might anticipate God sort of throwing down the judgment gavel and say, that's it, I'm done with you, Israel. But look at verse 25. Oh, what a verse. I, even I, am the one who... Now, I have wipes. Maybe your translation has blots. I have wiped... Out or blotted out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. What is God saying? You've sinned, but I'll forgive you. What a great God. Now, let, 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 let's remember a few things when we talk about forgiveness. God does not ignore sin. God doesn't cover up sin. God doesn't, God doesn't refuse to deal with it. He doesn't minimize it. God doesn't redefine it. God doesn't blame shift the sin. He doesn't soften the conviction that he brings. No, no, no. God is the one who calls it like it is, but he's willing to forgive and blot out the sin because he loves his people. Isn't this the very thing that Jesus does for the Christian? He blots out our sins. Just listen to a few verses from 1 John. Just a a, a few verses here. 1 John 1 verse 7. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us. Don't miss this. From all sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world, meaning the Gentiles as well. And then in 1 John 2, verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. What a God who forgives. I was in downtown Clayton on Thursday. And often those people on the street get what I'm going to preach to you, but they get it in more of an evangelistic open-air sermon. And so I thought verse 25 would be an appropriate verse to preach on the streets of Clayton, Missouri. Because the word in Hebrew for wiping out is an accounting term. 
It's an accounting word. It's an accounting metaphor. It's the idea of erasing, the idea of removing, the idea of blotting out, the idea of taking a spreadsheet and you, and you copy a lot of, a lot of text and then you click delete. It's gone. Blot out. I want you to look at Psalm 51. Look at Psalm 51. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Psalm 32 was probably the hymn that was written right after that happened in Psalm 51, even a little bit later on as well as another hymn of repentance. Psalm 51, verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Look at this. Blot out my transgressions. Do you see it there? David is saying, God, according to the many, 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 many abundance of your compassions, erase. Blot out all of my transgressions. Look at Psalm 51 just a little bit later on. We see it elsewhere in the psalm. Because in verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then what do we read in verse 8? Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Here's our word, verse 9. And Blot out all of my iniquities. That's what David is saying. God, I want you to take my sin, even as a believer, and blot it out. Cleanse me. Erase it. I think of a teacher. You think of a teacher who has students sitting right in front of her. And the teacher says, now, boys and girls, when you do something wrong and when you err, I'm going to put a little tally mark on the board. And you're going to have a little penalty to pay afterward. So one little boy speaks a word that is really unkind and the teacher puts a mark on the board and, oh, that's, that's one mark for that kid. And then another child speaks out of turn. That same child again speaks another unloving word and they put another mark and then that child does it again and again and there's just mark after mark after mark and then everybody's thinking, boy, that little child has a lot of marks against him. He's going to really get it. Until the teacher takes that eraser and erases all of it. What a God who can take all of our sin and blot it out. Isaiah 53 here in a couple of weeks will tell us just how the Lord does that. But there's a great promise to God's people that he blots out their sin. Martin Luther told the story of how one evening he was dreaming and he was so troubled. He was awakened in the middle of the night and he said, I was being attacked by Satan. And he said, in my dream, it was as if the devil came to me with this really long list of all of my sins. And the devil said, Luther, look at all of your sins. And then he brought another list and said, Luther, look at all of your sins. And the devil said, Luther, look at all of your sins a third time. And Luther said, is that all you have? And the devil said, yeah, that's it. And then Luther said, well, then you should write on each one of them. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all sin. My sins have been blotted out. What a great, what a great picture. Of the promise and the hope that a child of God has. Do you see it in verse 25? Look at these truths of divine forgiveness to Israel and certainly to all of God's people who trust in him. Notice in verse 25 it all begins. It's a work of God alone. No human priest could ever absolve you from sin. No person could ever absolve themselves from sin. Only God can do it. Second of all, it's a full cleansing. Why? The Hebrew word for wipe or blot out is an ongoing action. I am the one who is constantly erasing your sin. 
get that and don't forget that. What an awesome God. I am continually, I am constantly in an ongoing action. I am cleansing, wiping away, blotting out all of your sin. Third, why would God do this? Verse 25, for my own sake. I do it not because of you, Israel. Not because of you, Jeff. Not because of you, child of God. I do it to magnify my name. Oh, what an important point on forgiveness here. Look at the end of verse 25. What does God promise? I will not remember your sins. Of course God is the all-knowing God. But true forgiveness is always a promise. That I'm going to pardon you and I will not hold the sin against you anymore. Does God remember our sins? Sure, he has a knowledge of our sins. But he chooses to not hold the sin against his people. And then what do we learn from forgiveness in the Bible? The way God forgives is the way you are to forgive. Oh, that's so important and so practical because what do we read in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32? That we are to be forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Whatever transgression, whatever sin others have done to you, you can forgive. You're called to have the attitude and the diligence and the perspective and the promise. Of forgiveness. Because God has forgiven us that way. What a God. Do you see in these verses here. Beginning in verse 22. God is saying Israel. You've wearied me with your sin. You've just burdened me with your sin. And what a God who says. But I will blot out your sin. He didn't do this yet. To the people of Israel. But there is coming a day when the Jewish people, Israel, alive, when the Lord Jesus comes back again at the end of the tribulation, those that are alive on the earth, they will look to their Messiah whom they have pierced and they will declare his praise and they will be forgiven. What a great God. So let's continue with the chapter and then we'll draw this to a close. Verse 26. What does God say? Put me in remembrance. Let us argue our case together. Can you bring something better than this? State your case that you may be proved right. Your first forefather sinned, which might be Adam or maybe Abraham or maybe Jacob. We don't know specifically, but one of the forefathers there, Adam or Abraham or Jacob. They've all sinned, verse 27, and all the spokesmen, all the prophets, all the priests have also sinned, verse 28, so I'm going to pollute the princes of the sanctuary. There's so much falsehood going on, they will pay the penalty for their sin. What a God. What a God who has such a plan for his people. I want to draw this to a close. Before I do, very, very quickly, I want to take just a minute and sort of help with a little bit of an interpretive issue. You might be thinking, Jeff, you've preached this whole chapter primarily about Israel. I get it. The chapter is about Israel. God explicitly says it's to the people of Israel, Jacob and Judah and the people of Israel. We understand that. But but what about me? How do I apply it to myself? Are these all promises for me today as the church? We have the meaning. So how do we apply this to ourselves? Let me see if I can give you some really practical tips on how to do this. Number one. We must always remember when we're interpreting the Old Testament that the character of God never changes. The character of God never changes. So the same character of God that comforted Israel of old is the same God that can comfort you and me today. He doesn't change. Second of all, there are many New Testament parallels that we need to look for. We cannot take all of the blanket promises that God made to Israel and say, well, those are promises to me. But what we can do is say, is that given in the New Testament to the church? And we can cling to those promises as given to us. A third point of 
help for us is remembering the salvation and the provision of God that he says toward his people Israel, which always directs us to his grace. It always directs us to the undeserved nature of Israel. Like us, we are undeserving, and yet we look to the grace of God. We can learn from Paul when he said in 2 Timothy 3 that the sacred writings are meant to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ. So we need that wisdom that points the people ahead to the coming Messiah. And I think there's one more heading that we need to understand when we're interpreting the Old Testament. God has a plan to make his name great on the earth. And his plan is not just to redeem people and take people to heaven. His plan is to make his name great on the earth. Through his people Israel, whom he called. And we see that in Romans 11, that God is not done with his people. And he will restore his people. And there will be a kingdom when Messiah reigns. And his people are with him for a thousand years. And we need to remember that God is all about making his name great. We want to worship him for he is faithful. And as God is faithful to Israel, guess what, church family? You and I can be encouraged. But if there's one promise that God made with Israel that he said, sorry, not not, going to fulfill that with you. then how do I know he's not going to make a promise to me and change that to me and give that to someone else? But praise God, he is so faithful to Israel. All of his covenants and all of his promises are true. Verse 25 in our chapter leads us to the forgiveness of our great God. And so I want to close with an illustration and then a brief gospel call. It was years ago, there was a father and his young daughter that lived in Canada. And they were walking through a large prairie on one occasion. It hadn't, hadn't rained for some time, and it was quite dry in this particular prairie. And so the father and the young girl were walking through this prairie together, and they were enjoying one another and the company. And as they went over some hills, they noticed when on this cloudy day, they thought it was a cloudy day, but it happened to be a fire. And they saw a prairie fire, and they soon realized, the father said, that these flames are coming our way. And these flames are going to engulf us. And we are going to be quickly without hope if we don't do something and do something very quickly. And so the father thought on his feet as quick as he could, and he opened up the backpack, and he took out some matches, and he said, there's only one way of escape. I need to quickly begin a fire right here where we are standing, and I have to burn a large piece of grass right here around us. And then, when the flames of that large prairie fire will draw near, We will stand on the section that has already been burned. And the flames will not approach us. Well, the flames and the fire did come. And they got oh so close. But the father picked up his child and held his child. And he said, the flames will not get to us. Because we are standing at the place where the fire has already been. And Christian, it's the same way for you. That if you're standing where the judgment of God has already been. If you're hiding in Jesus Christ where the judgment of God has already been poured out. The father swoops you up and he'll say, do not fear. I will protect you. I will hold you. I will watch over you. And this is the beauty of being forgiven in Christ. It's the beauty of knowing that God has saved you by his mercy. That God has redeemed you by his mercy. And just like he made a promise to Israel, I am the one who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. 
Can you say here this afternoon, I have come to believe on the Lord Jesus. And this same God in Isaiah 43, who makes a promise to Israel, has also said to me in the book of 1 John that he has forgiven all of my transgressions. And he has blotted out all of my iniquities. If you can say that today, that is the hope and the joy and the beauty of being a child of God. If you can't say that, if you don't know that for sure... Oh, how we beg you, how I beg you, how the Spirit of God calls you, and how the church in heaven, according to Revelation chapter 22, calls you to come to Christ and call upon his name, and he will save you, forgive you, and wash you, and have mercy upon you, and he will choose to never remember your sins anymore. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we can look to you in your word. Thank you for the powerful chapter and all these promises that you have made to your covenant people and how we can get at the meaning of the text and then we can have joy knowing that you are faithful, that you are reliable, that you are a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. Would you allow us As the New Testament covenant people of God in this church. Oh, that we would call upon your name. That you would be the one that we announce the excellencies of Christ before a watching world. Help us to do that for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.